Welcome to the Sunday Sermon Podcast of First United Methodist Church in Opelika. We'd love for you to join us for worship each Sunday at 9 o'clock or 10.30 a.m. To learn more about First United Methodist, visit us online at fumcopelika.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook at fumcopelika. Thanks for tuning in. Take your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 20. Our scripture reading this morning is going to come from the Gospel of John, the 20th chapter. If you don't have your Bible with you, I challenge you to get out your phone and Google John chapter 20. If uh, you don't have something that you can Google John chapter 20 with, there are Bibles in the hymnal shelf in front of you. I invite you to turn with me there as we read these familiar words of the resurrection. John 20 verses 1 through 18. And now, out of reverence for the Lord and for His Word, would you stand with me as we listen now together for the Word of the Lord. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed, for as that yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Pray with me, please. Good Father, we gather this Easter morning in humble adoration at your miraculous power, at your mysterious work, at your gift of love. We gather this morning like those early followers to come to the tomb to respond to you, to what you have done, 
to the reality of the good news that you have defeated death, that you have emerged victorious. Holy Spirit, come now and speak to our hearts. Lord, draw us into that which you have done, that through you we might find life that we cannot find on our own. We pray in the strong and mighty name of the risen Jesus and all God's children said, Amen. It happens in the middle of the night. Almost no one even notices when it happens. It's quiet. At one moment, it hadn't happened. At the next, it has. It is a moment that changes everything. From that moment on, everyone will be forced to respond, to reckon with the truth of what has happened. Many will come rushing immediately, right to receive, to respond, to reckon with what it is that has happened. Others will be slow to respond, maybe skeptical. They'll have to investigate. They'll have to hear the word from someone else. They'll be cautious before they finally pledge their allegiance. Some will belittle it, ignore it, pretend it hasn't even happened. Others will just drive by, oblivious, not even aware of the significance. That's right. By this time tomorrow morning, Bucky's will be open. <laughs> That's the monumental event we're here to celebrate, right? Oh, is there something else we should be talking about? Another monumental event, one that slips out in the night that makes a difference in all of our lives? It's interesting when you think about monumental events, whether it be the opening of a Texas-sized gas station, an unusual Super Bowl show, the birth of a child, the changing of a job, or the election of a new politician. Because monumental events demand a response. It's just non-negotiable. It's how they work. Something happens, and then kind of the whole system around it has to change. Everything has to respond to this monumental event once it has happened. Jesus is the most defining person in all of history. He is the most significant person in all of history. H.G. Wells says that the penniless preacher from Nazareth is irre irrevocably the central figure of our history. We literally define time by him. His story has been, uh, has been translated into more, th more than 3,000 languages. And everything revolves around him. But it isn't just his life. It isn't just his teaching that makes him the central figure in all of history. Because up until his death, everything else was the same. What makes him different is that his biography is the only biography that does not end with the sealing of the tomb. His divine attribution and his resurrection is what makes him this figure that all of us have to respond to. He is the central figure of history. It's interesting that even when we gather to celebrate, even when Mary made her way to the tomb as the first person to respond, that event that we celebrate had already happened. As Patrick and I were talking this morning, resurrection doesn't depend on us. 
Uh, Resurrection happens in the dark. Uh, The event that we celebrate happened when no one else was around. Maybe it was something like the opening of Bucky's. Maybe there was even less fanfare. But yet in the dark, when the people had the most despair, when the people were the most distraught, when everybody had scattered and left, God, of his own initiative, of his own love, of his own grace, of his own mercy, chose to work. And it demands a response. All of us live a life that responds to the resurrection. It's non-negotiable. Now, some people would like to say that the event did not happen. Uh, That they would say it was all staged, that it was fake, that Jesus really didn't raise from the dead. But when you really think about it, when you pay attention to the text, that argument isn't very plausible. Jesus' own followers, his disciples, uh, the text tells us that they didn't remember or certainly didn't comprehend that Jesus had said on multiple occasions that after three days he would rise. Uh, Besides, even if they had wanted to fake it, even if they had been the ones to try and say, we're going to stage this, the tomb was guarded by Roman soldiers. And so they would not have been successful if they had tried to attempt the tomb uh, to stage the resurrection. Jesus' enemies, those ones who had wanted him dead, uh, they remembered, the text tells us, that he had promised that he would raise from the dead, but they were the last people who would, wanted, who would have wanted to stage it. Uh, they wanted nothing more than uh, Jesus to be done, to be gone with, and so they would have never pretended that he raised from the dead. By the simple fact that the text tells us that the grave clothes were left lying there where the body had lain and the face cloth was neatly folded where the face had been, uh, we know that bandit grave robbers would not have been the ones at work because they would have never taken the time to unwrap the body and leave the grave clothes neatly lying where they were. That leaves us with this monumental, mysterious, miraculous event that demands a response. Jesus's burial on that Friday afternoon would have been a rushed endeavor. By the time that Jesus was declared dead there hanging on the cross, uh, the people would have been hurrying to finish up their Friday afternoon uh, work so that they could be prepared for the Sabbath that came on Saturday. Friday in the Jewish world in which Jesus lived was known as the day of preparation. And so as the sun began to set, when the Sabbath began on Friday evening, they would have needed all of their work to be finished so that they could rest for 24 hours the way God had commanded them to keep the Sabbath. Interestingly, if you're taking notes, the first Sunday of August, uh, we will have the leading expert on the Christian practice of the Sabbath in our church. On Back to School Sunday, Matthew Sleeth, who's written the book 24-6, will be here to talk about the value of keeping the Sabbath and how that one discipline uh, may impact your life more than anything else. But I digress. Uh, Anyway, so they would have been uh, rushing to finish things. And so uh, when Jesus was dead and they went and asked to take his body from the cross, uh, two of his followers said, we will quickly as we can put him in a tomb and do the best we can to prepare him for burial. And so one of those followers had a tomb. They carried Jesus in and did all that they could do to get him ready for burial. But as the sun went down and the day finished, they knew they would have to leave and come back and finish the task. So they left the supplies that they had there uh, and they walked out of the tomb. When they walked out of the tomb, the huge stone would have been rolled in front of it and two Roman guards were stationed there uh, to watch the tomb. 
uh, to add a kind of note of finality, uh, a Roman seal was used to seal the tomb to mark that the tomb had been officially closed. You can imagine uh, what those 24 hours would have been like. Uh, much like us, those who were closest to Jesus, uh, we, they would have been impacted the most by the lost. All of his followers had scattered because as the Sabbath came, they needed to get to the place where they would wait out this season. You can imagine the sleepless nights and the tears that they shed as they were waiting, wondering what it is that would happen. They had a hard enough time believing uh, that this had happened to Jesus, this one to whom they had pinned their hopes, this one that they had believed was the hope and future for their nation. And so they mourned, longing, wondering, waiting for the moment that they could go back to finish the task that had been left undone. Luke 8 tells us that Mary Magdalene, that one that John says was first to the tomb, that she had received her very life from Jesus. That early in Jesus' ministry where he was giving freedom and release, where he had come to release those who were bound, that he had cast up to seven demons out of her life. That she had been so tormented before she encountered Jesus that literally she had found her life in him. And so she was mourning, mourning for her personal loss, mourning for the hope, mourning for this one who was tried in an unjust court and sent to an early death. When she made it to the tomb and she saw that the stone had been rolled away, she didn't even take time to investigate to see if that's really what had happened. She immediately made a story up in her mind of what she assumed. Uh, now, when she looked at the thing, all she could think of was that these people who had tried Jesus, who had done so much to run him out, that this was just twisting the knife. And so immediately she convinced herself that the only possible thing that could have happened was those people who were out to get him had come and stolen the body. They had taken him away and they did not know where they had laid him. We know that the story was wrong, but it's hard to... to jumped down too hard on Mary Magdalene. I mean, after all, nobody expected no body. And so she made the assumption that all of us would have made in that moment. She didn't wait around to investigate. She just took off to go and share this news. She hightailed it out to go and tell Peter and John what she had found and to see if they could begin to figure out how they could restore dignity to Jesus and get him back in the tomb where she was convinced he needed to be. She makes her way to Peter and John and tells them that they've taken away the Lord and they don't know where they have laid him. And uh, Peter and John don't even wait to ask questions or try and understand more of what she said. They just immediately take off running. N.T. Wright says that in these three verses of the Gospel of John, we see more running than you see anywhere else in all of the Bible. That They run to the, away from the tomb, to the tomb, and back home again. As they make their way to the tomb, it's John who gets there first. And John tells us that he looks inside and that he sees the grave clothes lying there where Jesus would have been. He's taking it all in, pondering, curious what all of this means. It's only when Peter shows up that he impulsively bursts right into the tomb and looks around a little bit more, investigates a little more deeply, thinks and ponders what it is they may be experiencing. Finally, John follows into the tomb. And as he surveys all that is there, the text makes clear that he saw, that he comprehended. And in that moment, he entrusted himself to the Lord in a new way. Uh, he didn't understand it all. The text is clear that he didn't understand the details of the scripture, but something as he took all those pieces in, 
Something led him to trust that God was still working, that God was up to something, that this was not the end of the story, that God was on the move. He entrusted himself to the Lord in a new way. A a slight sliver of light, a new dawn of faith. Something began to emerge in him. As he engaged with this resurrection, as he engaged with the empty tomb, something in him was convinced that God was at work. No sooner had John and Peter come to this newfound sense of faith that they departed to head back home or we left looking at Mary who is still standing outside of that tomb and she is weeping. She is yet to find any of this newfound faith that Peter and John have experienced as they've investigated what was happening there around the graveyard. She stands there weeping, convinced that she knows what's happened, uh, doubling down on the story that she's believed that somebody has stolen this body and that if she can just find her way back to where he is, that she can take care of all of these things. Even when she peeks in the tomb and sees angelic messengers there who try and ask her what it is that she's wondering, she won't even begin to entertain that her story might be wrong. I wonder how often we have found ourselves in that place, convinced of a misguided story that we double down on, certain that we know what's going on in a situation, unwilling to even consider that God might be doing something in our midst. Some noise happens, something draws her attention, and she turns around. In the darkness and in her grief and Jesus' resurrected body, she can't recognize that it's Jesus. But Jesus meets her in that moment. I love the image of how Mary and Jesus interact there outside of the tomb. Because when we see Jesus find Mary there, he doesn't come immediately telling her to stop her crying. He doesn't tell her that he, she should get her act together. He doesn't say to her, uh, you've got it all wrong, let me correct you and tell you how you missed the boat here. He comes and meets her in her grief. He comes to her right where she is. He comes recognizing the pain and the struggle that she's feeling. I love thinking about the fact that Jesus comes to us in our grief. That he comes in our pain. That he comes in those moments. And that he just simply asks us the question, why are you crying? Where is it that you feel lost? Where is it that you feel like you're missing out? Where is it that you're hurting? It isn't that Jesus needs the information. He knows more information about our pain and our struggle and our hurt and our grief than we can even know about ourselves. But it seemed that there's something powerful in that moment. That in that place where we're willing to be vulnerable, to share our pain and open ourselves up and the hurt that we feel to Jesus, that we meet him in that place. Jesus looks at Mary and says, why are you crying? And once again, she rehearses that story that she's convinced is what has really happened. As she bears her soul, as she opens herself up and shares her pain, in that moment, she encounters the resurrected Lord. It wasn't just some encounter that would check the box and she could go, yep, I I saw him. He raised from the dead. Now let's get on with what's next. This was an encounter that changed her life. It changed the very trajectory of who she was. She thought she had received the fullness of what Christ could give into her life. But in that moment where she met the risen Lord, 
She, he, she was commissioned from telling the wrong story about what had happened to being the first person to proclaim the good news of what really had happened. Encountering the risen Lord changed everything about who she was. I love those two responses to the resurrection. Peter and John respond, and Mary responds too. Both of them couldn't be more different. Peter and John's response is kind of investigative. It's like they're pondering and wondering. It's like they're trying to to learn more and gather what they can. It's like they're trying to understand so that they might come to the place of entrusting themselves to the Lord in a new way. Mary's is completely different. Mary's doesn't seem to take any of the action of trying to figure it out. She doesn't avoid the tomb. She's certainly not absent. But it's like all she can do is just stay close and hope that something might happen. It's clear that neither one of these responses to the resurrection are about figuring it all out, about understanding all the answers or passing the test. The response to the resurrection isn't about mastering some competency. The response to the resurrection is really about openness and vulnerability. It's about a surrender and a welcoming. It's about entrusting ourselves to the Lord and opening ourselves to whether or not He is doing what He's done. He is doing what He says He'll do. It's about entrusting ourselves to say, is Jesus who He says He is? Has He done what He said He'll do? Will He keep the promises that He says He'll keep? Really, at the end of the day, the response to the resurrection is a response to Jesus. It's a surrendering to him and trusting that he is who he says he is. Famed former British atheist turned Christian philosopher C.S. Lewis has a famous argument that he presented over and over again as people wrestled with who Jesus was. Apparently, what he would encounter over and over again as he talked about Jesus, as he preached, as he tried to help people understand the truth of the gospel, is that they would say, we respect Jesus, we admire him, but I'm not sure about that him being God thing. Maybe he's just a good moral teacher. Maybe he was just a human teacher that made a big impact on the world. Lewis's argument was that that wouldn't stand up. That you couldn't just claim Jesus to be a good moral teacher. Because if Jesus made the kind of claims that he made, if he went around saying the things about himself that he said, he was either a liar, or even worse, he was a lunatic. And that he would say these things, that he's either a lunatic or he's the Lord. But there is no room in the middle to say, oh, he's just a good moral teacher. Because a good moral teacher would not make the claims that he made with a straight face. Lewis says it like this. He says, either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. However strange or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept that he was and is God. The resurrection demands a response. It isn't just a one-time thing. It's an ongoing way of life. 
The resurrection demands a response, not so that we can just say, oh, you fit into my neat, tidy box. I've got you all figured out. The resurrection demands a response because what we see happen in Peter and John's life and in Mary's life is what will happen in ours too. That when we come, when we open ourselves, when we entrust ourselves to him anew, the very trajectory of our lives will be changed. We will experience our own resurrection. All of those misguided stories that we held will be shattered by the good news of the one who conquers death. All of those priorities that we thought mattered so much will be reordered into the things that really matter. All of the pain and hurt will be fit into the context that we can grasp it and understand it in the light of eternity. All of those things that we have resisted or pushed back on, the ways that we have promoted ourselves or thought that we were in control will be surrendered and placed into the order that they deserve to be put in underneath the lordship of the one who is God. Resurrection demands response. So how will you respond? How do you respond? On this Easter morning, as you contemplate that empty tomb once more, as you hear this story one more time, what is your response? Where is Jesus in your life? Where are you around the tomb? Where are you as you investigate? Maybe you're more like Peter and John, investigating and curious. Maybe you're like Mary, feeling your pain and just hoping that Jesus is there. It seems that the only response that doesn't work is to ignore it at all. Resurrection demands a response. And so, overnight tonight a monumental event will happen. Bucky's will open. (laughs) And you'll have to decide, do I want cheap gas and a pretty good barbecue sandwich? But far be it that you care about your response to a gargantuan gas station more than the eternal truth of the empty tomb. Resurrection demands a response. Pray with me, please. Gracious God and loving Father, thank you that on this day we can join those early followers at your tomb. Thank you that we can embrace the empty tomb, not to figure it out, not to understand it, not to piece it all into our nice, neat, logical place, but that we can come receiving that you are the one who has conquered death, that you are the one who has paid the price by the empty cross and that you are the one who has purchased us in love through the empty tomb. Lord, as we respond to this, your good news, would you work in us? Would you draw us towards you? And Lord, would you reorient our lives that we might know our own resurrection from death to life, that the trajectory of our stories would be changed to align to yours, that we might walk on mission with you, serving you and honoring you in all we do. We pray in the strong and mighty name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's children said, amen.